The title of today's message is this. Catholicism is a vast missionary field of 1.3 billion perishing souls. If we were still making tapes, it would just say Catholicism is a vast missionary field. But to expand upon that, of 1.3 billion perishing souls, precious men, women, and children being drugged down to hell under these doctrines of demons all over the planet. And very likely, you drove to church today past one or two or three Roman Catholic churches whose parking lots were not full because it's not Easter or Christmas. And because that's part of their legalistic salvation, you can't skip Christmas and Easter or your soul is in dire peril. And so looking out in the broader church, looking out at our nation, what was preached last Lord's Day, which is Reformation Sunday, there was very little preached, there was very little written, there was very little posted on blogs or written in articles or posted on social media that would in any way affect a Roman Catholic and compel them to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Reformation fire is burning low. There are 1.3 billion souls perishing. That is a vast, vast, immense mission field. And we are virtually silent. Even on that day and that Lord's Day that many of us called Reformation Sunday. And yet there was no actual Reformation. On October 31st, in the year 1517, Martin Luther took his hammer and his nails, and he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the chapel at Wittenberg. And that, for many, is looked to as the official kickoff of the Reformation, as he brought correction to Roman Catholicism's many heresies in his day. And here's what you must understand. And you might remember from last week, if you were here, that there are far more Roman Catholics on the face of the earth perishing under Roman Catholic heresy today than there were in Martin Luther's day. Catholicism was fairly regionalized on the globe in Luther's day. Today it is global. Today it's on every continent. And the population of the world, along with the globalization of Catholicism has grown. Thus, we have 1.3, give or take, billion Roman Catholics perishing. So let us get some clarity. I am a reformer. Perhaps you haven't figured that out yet. I've said it a few times. Let me be clear. I'm a reformer because I love the Lord Jesus, because I love his gospel, because I love perishing sinners, and because there's a block, a block of humanity, a huge portion of mankind that are flying the the banner of Rome. I must be a reformer if I'm going to obey the law of God and love God who is being blasphemed by Roman Catholicism and love my perishing Roman Catholic neighbors. C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, was a reformer before me. He is one of, if not my favorite, preacher of antiquity. C.H. Spurgeon said this, as quoted by John MacArthur on page 54 of his great book, Ashamed of the Gospel, 
C.H. Spurgeon said this, Everybody admires Luther. Yes, yes. But you do not want anyone else to do the same today. When you go into the zoological gardens, you all admire the bear. But how would you like a bear at home? Or a bear wandering loose about the street? You tell me that it would be unbearable. And no doubt you are right. Spurgeon had a sense of humor, isn't it? So we admire a man who was firm in the faith, say, 400 years ago. The past ages are a sort of bare pit or iron cage for him. But such a man today is a nuisance. It must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot. Or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Hear me, if you've never been called a narrow-minded bigot for your declaration in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. Jesus said they will call you worse things. Jesus said, woe is you if everyone likes you, if everyone affirms you, if everyone thinks well of you. When you stand with Jesus, the world is going to stand against you. And this vast antichrist satanic system called Catholicism is going to stand against you. And everyone who calls themselves evangelicals who is standing with Catholicism is going to stand against you. And that is tragically a vast number. And so this very week, I've essentially been called a narrow-minded bigot in similar terms. Or a worse name, if you can think of it, says Spurgeon. He goes on, Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their compeers had said, The world is out of order. But if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row and get ourselves into disgrace. Let us go to our chambers, put on our nightcaps, and sleep over the bad times, and perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps, and the pestiferous bogs of error would have swallowed all. These men loved the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled on. And that's really the heart of the matter. Do we love Jesus? If we really love Jesus, then we can't tolerate His gospel, His treasure being trampled on by unholy, Romish, priestly feet. These men love the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled on. Note what we Owe them and let us pay to our sons the debt we owe our fathers. It is today, as it was in the reformers' days, decision is needed. Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed to us by martyr hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line of it. The faith I hold bears upon it marks of the blood of my ancestors. Shall I deny their faith for which they left their native land to sojourn here? Shall we cast away the treasure which was handed to us through the bars of prisons or came to us charred with the flames of Smithfield? Spurgeon was a bit closer to the Reformation than we are. 
we no longer feel the heat of the flames. We no longer smell the smoke of the singed flesh of our forefathers who fought a good fight. We no longer hear the cries of our forefathers who were put on the rack and had every bone stretched out of joint only to be put back into prison, to be put back on the rack again once they had healed over and over, compelling them to deny Christ and believe the Pope's damning doctrines. We can no longer hear the muted cries of our forefathers who preached Christ and His gospel valiantly in the face of Rome's tyranny until their tongues were cut out and they were tied to a stake and slowly burned deliberately with wet wood. We can no longer hear the horror of the blast of the dynamite or the keg of powder they put about the neck of reformers after they had burned them to then blow them up. We need to hear again. We need to smell again. We need to remember again those that fought a good fight against this great evil. It's not just evil when it's a tyranny. It's not just evil when it puts you to death for opposing its false gospel. It's evil when it drags precious men, women, and children one by one to the count of billions to hell. And that spiritual evil, that eternal evil, is the greatest evil of all. If you cannot hear our forefathers' cries from the stake, hear the cries from hell. Hear the countless billions of Roman Catholics who have already died and are already abiding to the wrath of the Almighty. And be compelled to stand up and to go, therefore, to our Roman Catholic neighbors, that they might hear the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and never hear the weeping and gnashing of teeth that so many of their Catholic ancestors will hear forever. Spurgeon elsewhere said this, It is impossible but that the church of Rome must spread when we who are the watchdogs of the fold are silent and others are gently and smoothly turfing the road and making it as soft and smooth as possible that converts may travel down to the nethermost hell of popery. The velvet has got into our ministers' mouths as of late, but we must unrobe ourselves of soft raiment, and truth must be spoken, and nothing but truth. Any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. The mass is a mass of abominations, a mass of hell's own concocting, a crying insult against the Lord of glory. It is not to be spoken of in any terms, but those of horror and detestation. When I think of another sacrifice for sin being offered by whomever it may be presented, I can only regard it as an infamous insult to the perfection of the Savior's work. That is a powerful quote. Where were those quotes on Reformation Sunday? Where were the articles 
that sounded like that on Reformation Sunday? Where were the blog posts that sounded like that on Reformation Day? Now the velvet has gotten into our mouths and upon our fingers. In Spurgeon's Treasury of David, as he was commenting on Psalm 106, verse 20, he said this, False gods attempts to represent the true God, and indeed all material things which are worshipped are so much filth upon the face of the earth, whether they be crosses, crucifixes, virgins, wafers, relics, or even the Pope himself. So much filth upon the face of the earth. Where is that kind of clarity? Oh, we do not want to offend. Hear me. We offend Jesus. We offend the one true God. We offend our forefathers who suffered and died for this gospel they handed down to us. We offend the souls that are perishing in hell when we will not speak with clarity about the filth upon the face of the earth that is worshipped in the form of crucifix, virgin, wafer, relics, or even the Pope himself. Spurgeon goes on to say, we are by far too mealy-mouthed about these infamous abominations. God abhors them, and so should we. God hates them. He hates them because God hates idolatry. He hates a false gospel that damns and that blasphemes His Son, Jesus Christ, and His finished work on the cross. God abhors them, and so should we. To renounce the glory of spiritual worship for outward pomp and show is the height of folly and deserves to be treated as such. Spurgeon elsewhere said, it is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. Should we not pray against that which is damning well over a billion souls to hell? And as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question If it not be the Popery in the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. And yet, less than a mile from here, we had Luis Palau, one of the world's greatest evangelists, declare the Pope as his brother in Christ and a genuine minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was not alone in that. The compromise in our day is vast. Spurgeon was clear. If it be not the popery in the church of Rome, there's nothing in the world that can be called by that name, the name of Antichrist. If there were to be issued a hue and cry for Antichrist, bring us the Antichrist, we should certainly take up this church on suspicion and it would certainly not be let loose again for it so exactly answers the description. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel. And is the Antichrist. And we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and for Christ. Because it wounds Christ. Because it robs Christ of his glory. Because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement. And lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior. And a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost and puts mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it because it is against him, we shall love the persons though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls 
Though we loathe and detest their dogmas, and so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces towards Christ when we pray. John MacArthur rightly said, In the long war on truth, the most formidable, relentless, deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. The most relentless, deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. And yet these kind of statements are virtually unheard of, even on Reformation Sunday. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It is a front for the kingdom of Satan, says John MacArthur, rightly. Gospel compromise is rampant, even in conservative biblical reform circles. Thus, my duty is to light the fire. My duty is to protect you saints. Because you're surrounded by saints that are being taught that Roman Catholics are brothers and sisters. You're surrounded by compromise. My friend, who graduated from George Fox University, who works for CARM, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Ken Cook, went to George Fox years after he had graduated with a camera and a microphone. And he went around asking the students... Are Roman Catholics Christians? When they die, will they go to heaven? And other similar questions. And over and over and over and over again, they failed to answer according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is no shock, because one of the largest supposedly Christian universities in our area, George Fox, has a Roman Catholic priest on campus who gives out mass every day and who actively evangelizes for Rome amongst the Protestant evangelical students who are sent there by their parents, largely unaware. And that kind of compromise... That kind of, not compromise, counter-reformation, feeding sheep to the wolves, that kind of thing is everywhere. It's everywhere. Thus, my aim is to equip you. If you want to minister to Roman Catholics, actively come with me to the abortion clinic, and very often you will have the opportunity to engage real Roman Catholic men and women with the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a joy. I love them. I hate Roman Catholicism passionately. I love Roman Catholics passionately. There is a difference. And the one leads to the other. Let us consider specific heresies. The heart of Roman Catholicism is the mass. Thus, you need to have the edge of your gospel sword sharp when you consider the mass. Roman Catholicism's false sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, the official doctrinal statement of the Catholic Church, says this in paragraph 1323, quote, 
At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharist sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. And so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed The mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. Again, paragraph 1323. The Eucharist sacrifice of his body and blood. What is it? Is it remembrance? No, it's a sacrifice. They are re-sacrificing Jesus Christ every day at Mass, which tells you what about Tetelestai. John 1930, Jesus' last words on the cross. It is is finished, or in the Greek, to die. What does Rome teach about to die? It is finished, the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is not finished. How do we know they teach it's not finished? Because their catechism says, the Eucharist sacrifice of his body and blood. It's an ongoing daily sacrifice. Now they have fancy priestly footwork in which they'll say, oh, It is finished, but it's still being finished. It is one sacrifice. What we're continuing now is still the the original sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are in space, time, and matter. He is not, and, and they dance all around. And yet, the reality is, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. He ascended. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he waits there until he returns again to put his enemies beneath his feet. And as he is there, he's there as the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why did he sit down? Because his work is done. He is not called out of heaven by an unholy priest declaring some Latin incantation. He is not placed into a piece of bread in what's called the transubstantiation, the heresy of transubstantiation. He is not placed into a piece of bread or into a cup of wine that you might eat his flesh and drink his blood and have your sin removed through that work of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It is not a sacrifice of his body and blood, and yet that's what Rome celebrates and teaches It goes on to say, this he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages. Perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross. How do you perpetuate that which is finished? You see, there's no peace here. No matter how they nuance, there is no peace between die, bow your head, give up the spirit, buried three days, resurrected, conquering sin, Satan, and death, ascend, sit at the right hand of the Father until you return again. We're even told specifically not to believe. Should someone say, see, see, here he is in the innermost chamber. We've, We've got him in here. He's come back. No, you're not to believe that. Because when he comes again, what? The whole world will see. The whole world will see. At the end of paragraph 1323, again, it says, in which Christ is consumed. Christ is consumed. Literally. In their heresy of transubstantiation, it is literally Jesus Christ's flesh. No matter what your senses tell you, your senses are lying to you. Their doctrine demands that you believe it is the literal flesh of Jesus. It is spiritual cannibalism. 
And that justification comes from your spiritual cannibalism. You're eating the flesh of Jesus. Christ is consumed. And thus they have all sorts of interesting rules about crumbs of wafers and interesting teaching about what happens when Christ is consumed in the belly and whatnot. And does Christ become waste? Oh, certainly not. Nonsense. Heresy. Paragraph 1324 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. What does that mean? The source and the summit of the Christian life. Well, it is what saves you day by day. Not through imputed righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and His finished work alone, but through infused righteousness. Drip, drip, drip. You go to the, the Catholic spiritual hospital and you get another infusion through consuming Christ. Another infusion. It's idolatry. It's another gospel. It is a false sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. And they declare it to be the source and summit of the Christian life, which of course it would be if what they taught is true and biblical. Paragraph 1357 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, Bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ have become the body and blood of Christ. Christ is thus really and mysteriously made present. Paragraph 1367. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. Same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. What does the Word of God say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So they have a continual daily Resacrifice, although they say it's not a resacrifice because it's the same sacrifice somehow. It's the same sacrifice, just being perpetuated. So they say perpetuated, I say resacrifice. They, they like nuance. Heresy always loves nuance. That's a rule to remember. Heretics and heresy live in nuance. If it truly is finished, thus he bowed his head, gave up his spirit, ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, is the one meeting between God and men, the man Christ Jesus then we don't have a perpetual sacrifice where he's called down every day, called down every day and re-crucified, 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 perpetually being crucified. Do you see why you should hate the crucifix? What is the crucifix saying? It's not finished. Priest, call him out of heaven every day and put him back on that cross. And yet it also says, it's not bloody. <laughs> so he's back on that cross every day because it's not finished and we're still perpetuating it, but it's no longer bloody. Well, then it's not sufficient because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Thus says the word of God. So the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Paragraph 1405 says, every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. So what's going on in the mass? The work of our redemption. It's carried on. Now, when you read books like Hebrews, the Bible, the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
inerrant and preserved, the book of Hebrews speaks in past tense about redemption, about justification. Having obtained eternal redemption. Past tense. Is there peace between what the Word of God says and what Rome's catechism says? Every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on? No, there's no peace there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, How are sins removed? How are we redeemed? How are we justified? When he had by himself purged our sins. What tense is that in? Past tense. When he had by himself purged our sins. Does he need any help? Does he need a pope? Does he need a priest? Does he need daily mass? Does he need you to show up and eat his flesh? No. When he had by himself purged our sins. That's what the word of God says. What did he do when he had by himself purged our sins? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because he had by himself purged our sins. His work was done. First Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he did it. He did it. He saved them. He saved them. Now, in space, time, and matter, they must repent. They must confess Christ as Lord. But he pronounced his tetelestai over all the elect. It was not a price for an unknown, unnumbered people. It was a price for the people he came to die for. For his elect, for his chosen, for his predestination. is predestined. And that price was paid in full. Thus, he had by himself purged our sins. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 7.26 says this, For such a high priest, let me hit the pause button there, I don't want any other priest except this priest. In fact, here's the reality, there are no other priests. Just the fact that they take the name priest is audacious and blasphemous. What do priests do? What makes a priest a priest and a pastor a pastor? What's the difference? A pastor says to the sheep of the Lord's fold, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's follow Christ together. This way, come this way. That's a pastor's job. A priest says, let me offer up Christ as a sacrifice. And you can eat his flesh and drink his blood to be justified day by day. Priest makes sacrifices. Shepherds say, this way to Jesus, this way to heaven. And their crook looks a lot like a book, the word of God. They preach the word. Again, 726, Hebrews 726, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. What doesn't he need? 
He doesn't need daily to offer up sacrifices as what priest? The priest of the Old Testament. So he's being compared as the final priest and the final high priest who offered up the final sacrifice of himself. He's being compared to the Old Testament priests. And in that comparison, it's declared that he doesn't need daily to offer up a sacrifice because his sacrifice is all sufficient. Now let me remind you of this. There is a priesthood in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. There is a priesthood in the Bible that's in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the final high priest with the offering of himself and he needs not offer up daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Why? Because he by himself purged our sins, past tense, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why. And so even the concept of the priesthood, the audacious title they take upon themselves. I'm a priest. Call me father. It's a game they play. Some of you were with me recently on the streets, and I, I say, oh, what's your name? And I'm, I'm being cordial. I'm being nice. They're human beings. I love them. I want them to repent and be saved. Luther was once a priest. He got saved. I have hope for them too. I'm Chuck. I'm father so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so, good to meet you. Father so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so, good to meet you. Father so-and-so. I'm not going to call you father. Not going to do it. Don't call them father. They're not your father. If they're your spiritual father, then God is not. Don't call them father. Little side note. Hebrews 9.12. Hebrews 9.12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So not with the blood of goats and bulls and whatnot, but with his own blood, his own blood, he entered the most holy place. He, as the final high priest, sacrificed himself. He doesn't need these want-to-be blasphemer priests to sacrifice him up daily. He sacrificed himself willingly. He sacrificed his own blood willingly. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once. He did not enter your local Catholic church. He did not enter your local Catholic cathedral. He did not enter your local Catholic grotto. He entered the most holy place, the presence of God himself, and offered up his holy blood. Is that not sufficient? He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How many times? One time. One. And why only one? Because he obtained eternal redemption with that one offering. He obtained, again, past tense, eternal redemption. Again, the catechism said, paragraph 1405, every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. The word of God says, he obtained eternal redemption with the one sacrifice of his blood. Let God be true and every priest a liar. What is your job with Roman Catholics? To show them that the word of God and the word of Rome are not at peace. To show them that their faith is not found in Holy Scripture. I often start with this. Oh, you're Catholic. So you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Yes. You believe it's inspired, inerrant, preserved. Yes, they'll typically say, I say, oh, that's great. 
So my concern is, is that the things you believe that the Church of Rome has taught you are not found in Holy Scripture. In fact, they're directly contradictory to Holy Scripture. And they will damn your soul. And so I say this out of love for you, my Catholic friend. Let's compare what Rome teaches with what the Scriptures teach. And then you begin to compare catechism with Scripture. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And my confidence is not in my intellectual ability to argue, even from the Scriptures. My confidence is in the Scriptures, that they, if they're numbered amongst Christ's elect, if Jesus did pronounce to Telestai over them 2,000 years ago, if he did pay for their sins, he paid even for their Catholic sins, and they will repent of them. They will repent of their Catholic heresy and find out that Jesus paid for their Catholic heresy. And they will believe upon the true Christ who is not a wafer, and they will confess him as their Lord and believe his true gospel, that he has obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So a non-bloody sacrifice versus without blood there is no remission. The Word of God is contrary to the Catechism of Rome, or I'd like to say it in its reverse. The Catechism of Rome is contrary or anti-Christ, anti-Scripture. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That was Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. Let's unpack it just a little bit. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often. So not often, not every day at noon in the mass. Verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often. So offer himself often, he would have had to suffer often. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin. Not often, not often, once. Is the mass of God? No. Is he being re-crucified daily in a non-bloody manner of God? No. Is the work of his eternal redemption being carried on every day in mass? No. Because once... Not often, not often. What happened? But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin. What tense? Past tense. What did he do? He put away sin. Once it's put away, it's away. Eternally speaking, all those he pronounced to tell us die over, their sins have been put away. In space, time, and matter, yes, we've got to come to repentance and confess Christ as Lord. And we will, as faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Not one will be lost. And yet, they must repent. They must repent 
of the sin of unbelief. They must repent of idolatry, believing in a false god, like the wafer that is Jesus. That's a false god. And they must believe the true gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not sacraments, not wafer, not the re-crucifying of Christ every day at Mass in a non-bloody manner, continuing on the perpetual work of redemption. That's another gospel that is not another. That's anathema, Galatians 1, 6-9. But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Once, once, not daily, not often, not often, past tense, purged, past tense, put away sin. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 15. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It's almost like God knew the devil was going to come up with this heresy called Roman Catholicism. Of course, God, who is omniscient, knew that the devil was going to come up with this doctrine of demons called Roman Catholicism and damn billions of souls. And he wrote this book called Hebrews that was designed, praise God, historically, to rescue Jews out of dead Judaism. But hear me, at least Judaism was of God. Its priesthood was of God. Its sacrifices were of God. And they were all pointing to Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Rome is not of God. Its sacrifices are not of God. They're all antichrist. They're in place of and against Jesus Christ and his finished work. Thus, Every priest stands daily, ministering daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sins forever. And then he sat down because his work was done. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made a footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It's like this legal document that a lawyer would write, so there's no wiggle room for Rome. Instead, it's a legal document that God wrote, so there's no legal room for Rome or for Jews or for any other heretics, or heresies. Again, past tense, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever. Perfected forever. It's done. It's past tense. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Perfected forever. He's already done it. He has perfected us forever. To die. Justified. Imputed justification. Not infused. We could consider 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We could consider, of course, John 19.30, It is finished. Or Romans 
9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. A perpetual sacrifice? Dying daily on the cross in an unbloody manner? No. Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. What's the crucifix about? Death having dominion over him perpetually. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Revelation 1.17, And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. But he, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am not re-crucified in a non-bloody manner, perpetuating the sacrifice and redemption every day because some non-priest said a Latin hocus-pocus incantation calling me out of heaven. No, I'm he who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That is Catholicism's false sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. A nuance of that, if you will, in a righteous sense, or a, another facet of that heresy, uh, which we've touched on, but is even more clear as we focus in on it, is Catholicism's idolatry in the Mass. Is Christ literally that piece of bread? Is he literally that wine in that cup? Well, paragraph 1375 of the Catholic Catechism says, quote, It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in the sacrament. Paragraph 1377 says, The Eucharist presence of Christ brings at the moment to the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharist species subsist. It's a species. Paragraph 1378 says the worship of the Eucharist. The worship of the Eucharist. What is that? That's idolatry. The worship of the bread and the cup. The worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply is a sign of adoration of the Lord. I have many Catholics say, no, no, we, we don't worship. It's a nuance. We don't worship the Eucharist, some readily confess, we do worship. It's Jesus. We worship, absolutely. But then others try to nuance. They try to dance a little bit. We, say, we don't worship it. We bow before it. We pray to it. We genuflect. What does the law of God say idolatry is? Bowing before? Yeah, if you bow before it and adore it, that, that's worship by biblical definition. But their catechism says, the worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. By the way, you don't have to bow to be an idolater. If you believe that piece of bread is Jesus, you're an idolater because that's not Jesus. It's an idol. You didn't have to bow before the golden calf at the, the foot of the mountain there as Moses went up to get the law of God, saying you should not make any graven images nor bow down to them. And he came down and found what? A graven image. They didn't have to bow down. All they had to do was believe that that was God. And it was idolatry. However, they do bow down before it. They do pray to it. They genuflect before it. They look to it. And in faith, it is idolatry. 
They adore the wafer as the Lord. That is idolatry. What is adoration? If you say to your child, I adore you, what do you say? I love you. If you say to your wife, I adore you, you're saying I love you. They, they're loving the wafer. Well, I like bread. I confess, I like bread. I like bread with butter. I like bread with jam. I like bread with peanut butter. I like bread with meat on it, barbecue. I like bread with garlic and butter. I like bread a lot, but I don't adore it. That's too far. I don't worship it. I don't love it as God in flesh to be worshipped and to be eaten for justification. That's heresy. That's idolatry. That's another gospel. That's blasphemy of Jesus Christ. Paragraph 1183 says, The tabernacle is to be situated in the church in a most worthy place with the greatest of honor. The dignity, placing, and security of the Eucharist tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord really present in the blessed sacrament of the altar. And so there's a tabernacle in the Roman Catholic Church. And in that box, they put Jesus, a wafer of bread. And that wafer bread is in that tabernacle. So anyone who comes into the Roman Catholic Church any time of the day, they're to do what? Stop and genuflect. And they, why do they come there all day? Why do you pray at home and not come here? Why do they go there to pray? Because Jesus is there. And they want to be with the Lord. Their idol is there in that box all day. And they go to be with the Lord. They talk to Him. They pray to Him. They worship Him. They eat Him. They place him in a box, in a most worthy place with the greatest of honor. The dignity, placing and security of the Eucharist tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord really present in the blessed sacrament of the altar. Idolatry. Undeniable idolatry. Now the argument is made by someone, they don't understand it's idolatry. Idolatry is idolatry whether you think it through or not. You know, you say to the police officer, I didn't see the stop sign. Anyone ever get a ticket regardless of the fact you didn't see the stop sign? It's more likely you didn't see the police officer, <laughs> right? I, I didn't see the speed limit sign. You still get a ticket generally. Why? Because the law is the law, and generally people lie to police officers, and we lie to ourselves, and we lie about others even to defend them when they're guilty. And, and so ignorance is no excuse. It seems like there's Second Thessalonians, it says um, that the wrath or Jesus is going to return with a fiery vengeance for all those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and who do not know God. They don't know him. They've got another God. And hear me. The idea of defending a Roman Catholic, saying that they don't really understand what the Mass is, is somehow gracious or compassionate or loving toward them. When the Holy Spirit of God regenerates a sinner's dead soul and illuminates their mind to the glory of Christ and his gospel, they understand things. It's not asking for something extra, for them to repent of idolatry and to worship the true Jesus and to believe his true gospel. Rather than to continue to participate in idolatry, worshiping a false Jesus, and acting out a false gospel every day in Mass. And we can't count someone saved, born again, a new creature, going to heaven, until they repent of their idolatry and the false gospel that are intrinsically 
connected in the Mass. It's not gracious. It's not compassionate. It's not loving. It's not kind to make such arguments. And so what do we say to our Catholic friends? You must repent of the Mass. You must repent of the Eucharist. You must repent of that wafer and that cup. You must believe upon the true Christ who obtained eternal redemption, ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. And you must believe upon him and his tetelestai truly, not in some nuanced sense where you have an ongoing perpetual sacrifice every day that is still garnering for you eternal redemption, gaining you eternal redemption, but you actually believe on the true Christ and his true gospel, that he's in heaven bearing the marks of his crucifixion where he obtained eternal redemption. And he is seated there as the one mediator. No pope, no priest, no Mary between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And until they have repented of the mass, you can't count them saved. And we haven't talked about Roman Catholic baptism, when an unholy priest sprinkles unholy water on an unholy baby and pronounces them regenerated from the dead spiritually and now a member of the universal spiritual church of Jesus Christ, born again from above. We haven't talked about that at all. We haven't talked about the video I just put up yesterday of the man on the street outside the abortion clinic, the Catholic man who I asked, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And he said, yes, I have confidence that I would. And I say, why? And that's the question you've got to ask your Catholic friends. Why are you going to go to heaven? Is it because of your baptism? And I didn't have to ask him that. He just gave it. Why are you going to go to heaven? I was baptized. Well, that's a false gospel. That's the heresy of Rome in baptism, which we haven't even touched on. And so they must repent of their Catholicism. They must repent of these heresies. They must repent of their idolatry and believe in the true God and the true gospel to be saved. Mark 1.15. Hold it with two hands. If you have to, tattoo your knuckles. Hold fast to Mark 1.15 that says, repent and believe the gospel. They must repent of their idolatry. They must repent of their false gospel. They must believe upon the true God and the true gospel like every other non-believer. Whatever religion or non-religion they're in, they must repent and believe the gospel. I hate Catholicism because it blasphemes my Lord and it's damning well over a billion precious souls and has already damned billions. I love Roman Catholics. Let us go, therefore, and make disciples, calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We ask, Father, for strength and courage and joy and, above all, love in the Great Commission, in the great missionary work of going, therefore, to rescue perishing Catholic idolaters. O Lord, send us. Send us. And may there be a great revival in our day. May there be a great reformation in our day. And Father, take the velvet from the pastor's mouths.
and grant that they would be reformers again. Not in name, not in denomination, not in false claim, but in reality as true and faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray it in His mighty name. Amen.